Major funding for Telehell is provided by Dave's Archives. If you're looking for retro commercials from the 50s all the way up to the 90s and possibly some points beyond in the future, turn to Dave's Archives. Also home to the TGIF live stream on Friday nights. Go to davesarchives.com. By Retro Cirque on YouTube. Home to the off-duty mind players and all those off-air commercials that he likes to put up so much from the 80s and 90s. Go to YouTube and type in Retro Cirque, spelt with a Q at the end. And by the continuing financial support of our patrons at patreon.com slash podcast, including Mr. Cheeseball, Rick Kalaki Jr., Chris Mashad, Meredith Morrissey, Justin Moses, Rabbi, Spare Parts, and Neil Weinstein. Thank you. Stay tuned after the feature for a special message. And now, our feature presentation. The U.S. Bicentennial. The creation of new Coke. The turn of a new millennium and the subsequent fears of the Y2K bug. The Mayan calendar ending in 2012. What do all of these notable moments in time have in common? The simple fact that each of these events were preludes to an anticlimax. Not that every single one of these were bad moments, just overhyped. I wasn't alive during the bicentennial, but if it was enough for CBS to devote nightly minute-long interstitials over a three-year period, chances are they may have oversold it just a little bit. These historic minutes are sponsored each night by Shell. Coca-Cola changing their recipe in the hopes of boosting sales? Do I really need to explain that one? The simple fact is that all of the time and money and skill poured into consumer research on the new Coca-Cola could not measure or reveal the depth and abiding emotional attachment to original Coca-Cola felt by so many people. Same goes for when a simple odometer change didn't result in computers malfunctioning. Fears of a Y2K depression-like run on banks failed to materialize. Nor did time continuing to march on spell the end of the world in 2012. NASA scientists have repeatedly tried to dispel the rumors about the world coming to an end. And amazingly, one in ten people around the world believe that today is doomsday. Point is, there have been many moments in time that have been overhyped to a point that once the actual event takes place for all the world to see, it's all but disastrous if the people at large came together and collectively agreed that, meh, or that's it, or is that the best you could do? In this, our final episode of the season, we get to take a look at a moment in TV history that encapsulated all of these reactions. But more importantly, 25 years after this happened, we ask ourselves if the hatred of this TV moment was fully justified, or did it just need a quarter of a century to catch up to its own hype? Wow. Nine years, 180 shows, same 12 boxes of cereal, and millions and millions of dollars. <laughs> Jerry, you in there? Bessie! And now. It just never ends, does it? This is Tele-Hell. The year is 1981, and two New York born and bred comedians are seeking their fortune on the West Coast. One of them, a kid from Massapequa, Long Island, was about to make his first appearance on Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. Then they show you the satellite photo. This is real helpful. A photograph of the Earth from 10,000 miles away. Can you tell if you should take a sweater or not from that shot? I have no idea. If I really need to know the weather, I watch Romper. The other one, a slightly older kid from Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, was making his name both as a writer and a performer on a sketch comedy show that threatened to be the first major competition that SNL would have in the 80s. Let me say something right now. I've known Mo Gaddafi 
for what ever since I was a kid. And I just can't believe that my old pal Mo would hatch a plan to assassinate Reagan. Not the Mo I know. Well, Larry, uh, what do you intend to do about this situation? Well, I intend to give my old buddy boy Mo a call, Mel. All right. Well, it seems that Larry David is going to be calling up his old pal Moammar El Qaddafi. As the decade rolled on, the Massapequa kid would become one of the biggest stars in stand-up comedy. While the kid from Sheepshead Bay would continue to write comedy, even spending one season doing next to nothing on the very TV show that he was competing against just a few years earlier. Several more years would pass until, ultimately, the two of them would team up at the request of a TV network that was always looking for a good hit show. The rest is not quite history. It's easy to take for granted just how much of a television icon Seinfeld has become over the years. The classic show about nothing has spawned many a moment, catchphrase, dialogue exchange, and even launched a career or two over its nine-year run on NBC. But as famous as the show itself would become, the story of just how it struggled to become popular is a story in itself. Originally airing as a pilot in 1989, the show's actual first season came about in 1990, when NBC executive Rick Ludwin felt so confident about the show's potential that he sacrificed a part of the network's specials budget to help finance four more episodes that summer. Episodes that were not a hit when they first aired, but as is the case with many sleepers, it would pick up many more viewers when the shows were rerun in 1991. A few more adjustments were made to the show, including some strategic placements on NBC's schedule. And by the time the show hit its third season in 1991, the momentum would begin to grow. First as the 43rd highest-ranked show on television that year, then 25th by 1992, vaulting to third place in 93, and then becoming the number one show on television in 1995. Good things do come to those who wait. From there, everything else that happened with the show was just gravy. Constantly jumping back and forth between being ranked first or second place in a given week, the show's popularity just kept climbing with seemingly no end in sight. Which brings us to 1998. NBC wants Jerry to do a 10th season of the show, and Seinfeld, being the master of his domain, politely tells them, Well, good luck with all that. And just like that, Jerry Seinfeld both intentionally and unintentionally activated a time bomb. Yes, he was ending his show at the top of the game, but little did he realize that his simple act of pulling the plug on a TV show was about to send NBC through a bit of an existential tailspin, one that would bring about the best of times and the worst of times. On the one hand, with a show like Seinfeld coming to an end, think of just how much the network was willing to exploit it. Ad blitzes, higher advertising rates, big ratings. On the other hand, what would the network do once it was over? No new hit shows. Existing shows losing audiences. A fall from first place. As usual, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves. First, the show had to be written. By this point in time, Larry David had left the show as executive producer and head writer to do other things, leaving Seinfeld to essentially run the show. Eventually, Larry would agree to return for the finale, if not for a little extra pocket money so he could finish making the movie Sour Grapes, then also because he wanted to properly close out this chapter of his life once and for all. It was the writing of the script that was the easy part of the whole thing. The not-so-easy part simply trying to keep the details of that episode under wraps from when Seinfeld made his announcement to the night that the show aired. To put that in perspective, Seinfeld made the announcement of the show's ending in January of 1998. The show itself wouldn't air until May of 1998, meaning that for roughly five months, with the exception of Bill Clinton getting the BJ of the century, the final Seinfeld was the only other thing in the world that the world itself was talking about. After all the hype, tonight was the night that Seinfeld signed off. It was a show about nothing. I mean, most TV is about nothing. At least the show is honest about it, you know? So you will miss Seinfeld? Yes. I think I'll 
don't miss it because it's just a pastime. It's just become a habit. Across the country, parties dedicated to the end of the show's nine-year run. An estimated 80 million fans tuned in tonight to find out what will become of Jerry, Elaine, Kramer, and George. The show itself was recorded in April of 1998 under more locks and keys than you'd find at a bank vault. Table reads for the episode were held on closed sets. A fake episode title was devised so nobody could do any improper dissecting. Audience members were by invitation only by members of the Seinfeld staff, and those who attended signed non-disclosure agreements not to spill the beans until after the show aired. No stone was going to be left unturned in keeping the details of this show a secret, which only made the hype for this show even larger than expected. In Times Square, an awesome sight as hundreds of fans stood outside to watch the final episode on one of the world's largest television sets. Seinfeld made millions of people laugh for nearly a decade. Its loyal fans made it one of television's most popular shows ever. So much so that when the time came to sell ads for the show, they were being sold at a then-unprecedented rate of $1 million for 30 seconds. Back then, the highest ever price for a TV program that was not a sporting event. In fact, so much hype was made over something with very limited details to tell that it warranted some unexpected reactions from other TV networks. The A&E Network aired a biography on Jerry Seinfeld. The E! Network aired a true Hollywood story about Jason Alexander. Court TV would take a more seedy route and show highlights of a sexual harassment trial that Seinfeld was embroiled in during the 90s. And whoever was in charge of that programming decision has reservations made down here, I can assure you. But perhaps the biggest tips of the hat to the show about nothing came the night before it aired, when ABC's Dharma and Greg, remember that, aired an episode called Much Ado During Nothing, where the title characters try to win a bet by having sex in public while the entire city of San Francisco is huddled indoors watching that final Seinfeld. <laughs> That's so cool. I know. I think we're going to get away with it. <laughs> An episode which series creator Chuck Lorre, yes, that Chuck Lorre, said in an interview with the Chicago Tribune, quote, We're all fans of the show, and the last episode has gone beyond a television show. It's a social phenomenon. Ignoring it is like ignoring a major earthquake. End quote. Wise words from the man who decided to give Charlie Sheen a second chance, but that show hasn't aired yet as of press time. The second and probably more heartfelt tribute took place the night the show aired, when the TV Land cable network took the unprecedented step of ceasing all programming for the hour plus that the show would air. In place of programming, a static image of a closed door depicting their East Coast headquarters and a pair of post-it notes that said, We're TV fans, so we're watching the last episode of Seinfeld. We'll return at 10 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Pacific. You can't ask for more respect than that, and that's coming from a Viacom, nay, Paramount-owned TV network. So, by now, you get the point. Build up for this one episode of television, just to air, was pretty much volcanic. I'm no seismologist, but I do know that that kind of buildup can end in one of three ways. Either the built-up pressure simply dies down until something bigger comes along, or the volcano explodes, leading to widespread destruction, or maybe the volcano can only blow out a bunch of smoke with very little else backing it up. We'll find out once and for all, what's the deal with the Seinfeld finale? After the break! Hey, you say you're getting tired of lettuce and tomato hamburgers in this town that don't quite make it? Yeah! You say that just once you'd like your hamburger hot and your lettuce and tomato cool and crisp all at the same time? Yeah! Well, I say you got it. I'm talking McDonald's new lettuce and tomato hamburger, the McDLT. I'm talking quarter pound of beef on the hot, hot side. And the hot stays hot. The new McDLT. Crisp lettuce and tomato on the cool, cool side. And the cool stays cool. The new McDLT. Cool, crisp. The beef stays hot. The cool stays crisp. Put it together, you can't resist. The hottest taste. The coolest dish. Keep the hot, hot. Keep the cool, cool. McDLT. McDLT. Hot, eat 
To listen to Telehell's premium content of the damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com/slash Telehell Podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com/slash Telehell Podcast. Now at new low prices. And now, back to this week's torture. May 14th, 1998. Frank Sinatra would pass away at the age of 82, giving this finale a run for its money in terms of being a major news event. My sister turned 17 years old. Love you, Babs. And because of an oddly timed clip show, at 8.45 p.m., 7.45 p.m. Central, the final episode of an all-time classic begins with something that had actually not been seen on an episode of Seinfeld for many years. Jerry Seinfeld doing his stand-up. It seems like whenever these uh, office people call you in for a meeting, the whole thing is about the sitting down. I would really like to sit down with you. I think we need to sit down and talk. Why don't you come in and we'll sit down? Because sometimes the sitting down doesn't work. People get mad at the sitting. You know, we've been sitting here for I don't know how long. How much longer are we just going to sit here? I'll tell you what I think we should do. I think we should all sleep on it. Maybe we're not getting down low enough. Maybe if we all lie down, then our brains will work. And part of the reason why the stand-up piece returned was because Larry David had returned to write the episode. With him at the helm again, it left Seinfeld free to do an opening bit without being bogged down with showrunning duties. So at least there's a small consolation right out the gate that this show will remind us of the earlier glory days. Act one begins as many episodes do, with a conversation about nothing. I can't eat this without ketchup. Would it kill it to check up on us? Would that be a terrible thing? How's everything? Do you need anything? What can I do for you? I know what you mean. Do you? It's like going out with someone and then you never hear from them again. Same thing. Not really, but it's something. Well, it could be worse. He could be asking for some pretzels. Nice pretzels! I'm making this tasty! After more nothingness, Jerry and George head elsewhere, while Kramer bolts in to offer the gentleman some fun and also a possible ex machina for later. So what are you doing? Nothing. Come on, let's go to the beach. Are you crazy? It's a beautiful day. Have a good time. Yeah, there's something in the air today. You feel it? There's something in the air. You know you're turning into Burt Lancaster? (laughs) All the while dropping off Elaine for the purposes of the beginnings of a Z plot. You know, the A plot's the main story, the B plot's secondary, and a Z plot is something that's really there for no bearing on the story other than to kill time. Jill's father is in the hospital and you call to ask about him on a cell phone? What, no good? Faux pas. Faux pas? Big, hefty, stinking faux pas. (laughs) You can't make a health inquiry on a cell phone. It's like saying, I don't want to take up any of my important time in my home, so I'll just get it out of the way on the street. And the street cell phone call is the lowest phone call you can make. It's an act of total disregard. It's selfish. It's dismissive. It's pompous. Why don't you think before you do something? After that, we head to Jerry's apartment for this PSA on pissing. If you are thinking of instituting an open-door urination policy, let me disabuse you of that notion right now, my friend. You're so uptight. Yeah, uptight. Let's all just have a big pee party. Hey, everybody, grab a bucket. We're going up to Jerry's. It's a pee party. Brought to you by the National Euromycetysis Foundation. If you have to go that badly, go with discretion of secretion. 
So far, after about five minutes into this episode, all we're really seeing is literal and figurative nothing. Nothings that, because of the extended 75-minute runtime of the episode, I'm certain will be cut from reruns anyway. All of this nothingness, though, leads to the first big plot of the episode. That was James Kimbrough. Who's he? He is the new president of NBC. He wants to sit down with us and talk about Jerry. A show? Jerry? Right. Jerry? Oh my God, he wants to talk about Jerry? Yeah. When? Today, like right now. Right now? Jerry? Jerry! He wants to talk about Jerry? He wants to talk about Jerry! 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 Can I go like this? Sure! No sports jacket? I don't need a sports jacket. Writers wear sports jackets. Forget the sports jacket. I won't feel like a writer. You're not a writer. Right? Which brings me to a bit of a personal digression I have about this show. Back when I was alive, I was 13 years old when this aired. At that age, I only knew of Seinfeld up to a point. I wasn't a religious watcher of the show, but thanks to certain reruns and the barrage of news coverage taking place about the show's finale, I kind of felt like I knew enough about the show through osmosis. That didn't mean I saw absolutely everything. So naturally, when this aired, I had no idea what they were talking about until many years later when I saw the entire fourth season of the show in syndication where Jerry and George are trying to get their meta version of the show off the ground. So we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. Now, the reason why I bring all of this up is because we need to jump ahead a little bit to the show's aftermath. When all was said and done, a total of 76 million viewers saw this show. Of that 76 million, how many of those viewers do you think were diehard fans of the show? How many of them were casual viewers? And how many of them do you think never saw an episode of Seinfeld before the night of May 14th, 1998? Diehards will definitely know and appreciate what this scene was all about, but to those who may have only seen a handful of episodes, the moment may be completely lost on everybody else. Keep that in the back of your mind for the next few minutes because that notion's gonna come in handy later on. Anyway, Jerry and George return to NBC, no longer being run by Bob Balaban, but instead being run by Boone from Animal House. You can't do that to our pledges. Only we can do that to our pledges. Stu here started telling me about a show, Jerry, that he developed five years ago. He said it was a show about nothing. So, I saw the pilot, and I've got to tell you, I flipped out. What I want to do is put it on the air. 13-episode commitment. Start it off on Wednesday night, build an audience. This show needs time to grow. I love that Kramer guy. He's a little off the wall. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kramer. <laughs> and Elaine. I wouldn't mind seeing something happening between you two. Definitely. Uh, I tell you, I, uh, I really don't think so-called relationship humor is what this show's all about. Well, we could not do the show well together. How about that? So it looks like Jerry and George are right on the fast track again. Time to spread the word to loved ones, or in their cases, ones that they can mildly tolerate. I don't know how you're gonna write all those shows, and where are you gonna get all the ideas? Would you leave him alone? You'll shatter his confidence! I don't need any ideas. It's a, it's a show about nothing. Nothing, please. I'll tell you the truth. The whole thing sounds pretty stupid to me. <laughs> That last exchange, by the way, mirrored what Larry David felt at the time when Seinfeld got picked up for a second season in 1991. That he could barely write four shows, and now suddenly he had to write 13. The show wound up going as far as 180 episodes, so I'm guessing things are gonna work out just fine. And it gets even finer, as NBC dishes out some of the perks of working there just as Kramer barges into Jerry's apartment for the 389th and final time. So do you remember five years ago we did that pilot, Jerry? Well, the new guy at NBC wants to do it. They're putting it on the air. They're giving us a 13-episode commitment. George and I are moving to California. You're moving to California? Yeah, I'm only for a while. Yeah, but Jerry, what happens if the show's a hit? You could be out there for years. You might never come back. No, I'll be back. Jerry, it's L.A. Nobody leaves. Except, of course, for that time in season four of the show where Kramer is mistaken for a murderer in Los Angeles and eventually returns to New York for the rest of the series. But I digress. Act two begins with a discussion of where exactly our favorite foursome wants to go on NBC's dime. Why don't we just all go to Paris? 
I'll go to Paris. Me too. Oh, yeah, oui, oui. Ça va, ça va, ça va. So that's it. Yeah. It's settled. We're going to Paris. So, Paris it is. And. Hello, Jerry. Hello, Newman. Oh, hold it, hold it, hold it, hold it. It's very infrequent when I get to make bows of respect, but let's pause for just a moment to appreciate what I believe may be the best performance that actor Wayne Knight has ever and will ever give, whether it's as Newman or anybody else he would play on TV over the next few years. Take it away, sir. Take me! Take me! Oh, forget it! Pull yourself together! You're making me sick! Be a man! Hear me well. The day will come. Oh, yes. Mark my words, Seinfeld. Your day of reckoning is coming when an evil wind will blow through your little play world and wipe that smug smile off your face. And I'll be there in all my glory, watching, watching as it all comes crumbling down. <laughs> Bravo, sir! Bravo! That more than makes up for you getting eaten by a dinosaur in a Steven Spielberg movie. He gets spit on and eaten and chewed up by that little dinosaur guy. In delicious. So now it's off to the airport, where the Manhattan Night Four get ready to take off. Unfortunately, George being George, he just has to find something to complain about, doesn't he? I'm sorry, I have to say I'm a little disappointed. I thought it would be a lot nicer. You're complaining about a private jet? You think this is the plane that Ted Danson gets? Ted Danson is not even on the network anymore. Still, I bet when they gave him a plane, it was a lot nicer than this one. Will you shut up? Don't worry. He'd return to NBC in the 21st century not once, but twice. And I'm pretty sure avionic technology would improve greatly by then. But go on. Please, continue to complain about your free trip paid by a multi-billion dollar TV network. This is a real piece of junk. I don't even feel safe on this thing. I have a good mind to write a letter to Mr. Kim. You're not writing any letters! So, while we're paying no nevermines to biting the hand that feeds you. Earlier in the show, Kramer goes to the beach for no particular reason. When he returned, he got a slight case of swimmer's ear. A case that I'm certain will have no adverse effect on anybody and... You still got water in your ear. I can't get rid of it. Maybe it leaked inside my brain. Would you stop that? It's not safe to be jumping up and down on a plane. I gotta get it out. I can't take this anymore. Kramer, don't be fooling around up here! they were getting into. I say, let them crash. And as everybody braces for the worst, what better time than now to get a few things off various chests, starting with this callback to one of the most popular episodes of the show ever. Jerry, can you hear me? Yeah! There's something I have to tell you. What? What is it? I cheated in the contest. What? The contest, I cheated. Followed immediately to a sort of callback to an even earlier episode than that. We go in there, 
We're in there for a while. It's not complicated. It's almost stupid if we didn't. It's more loving. I don't know what you're celebrating for, Kramer. You started it. So now we land in a small town called Latham, Massachusetts, a town which, shock of shocks, doesn't really exist. Oh, there are towns called Latham in seven states and also two Australian suburbs. There's a town square in the city of Oakland, California called Latham Square, and yes, it's even a type of geological formation. But no, there is no such town as Latham, Massachusetts, officially putting the show about nothing in a town that's literally nothing. And while the gang have time to kill in literal nowheresville, they come across a crime in progress. In your wallet, don't you? <laughs> well, there goes the money for the lipo. <laughs> See, the great thing about robbing a fat guy is it's an easy getaway, you know? They can't really chase you. He's <laughs> <laughs> actually doing them a favor. It's less money for him to buy food. <laughs> you to walk. Come on, come on, come on! Uh, that's a shame. And that, ladies and gentle demons, brings us to the real story of the episode. All right. Hold it right there. What? You're under arrest. Under arrest? What for? Article 223-7 of the Latham County Penal Code. What? No, no, we didn't do anything. That's exactly right. The law requires you to help or assist anyone in danger as long as it's reasonable to do so. I never heard of that. It's new. It's called the Good Samaritan Law. Let's go. So if you're keeping track, this means that a show about nothing lands in a town made of nothing, and they get arrested for doing nothing. I would make a joke about the universe collapsing in on itself at this point, but because this is the last show of our season, our budget is pretty much tapped out as it is. Trust me, you don't want to know how much I spent on foreign snack foods just to land an interview with Bill Oakley a few weeks ago. So now, the gang is in jail at the start of Act 3 for reasons that actually establish a precedent of sorts. Could you tell me what kind of law this is? Well, they just passed it last year. Oh. It's modeled after the French law. I heard about it after Princess Diana was killed and all those photographers were just standing around. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you're the first ones to be arrested on it, probably in the whole country. Oh. <laughs> See, now the law calls for a maximum fine of $85,000 and as much as five years in prison. You know, my guess is you're gonna be prosecuted. Better get yourselves a good lawyer. And before the gang gets their good lawyer, there's a lot about so-called Good Samaritan or duty to rescue laws that I would love to tell you about, except for the fact that I'm not a lawyer, nor do I carry a law degree. And the closest I've ever been to passing a bar is having some Johnny Walker Red at a high school reunion once. So, after this show, if you want to know a little bit more about how these laws stack up in the real world, look up a YouTube channel called Legal Eagle. The guy who hosts it does a full-on dissection of how accurate Seinfeld's portrayal of this law is and can also really help fill in some gaps around here, even though this show is largely played for laughs. But as Seinfeld himself stated years ago as the show's mantra, no hugging, no learning. With that in mind, it's time for a visit from everybody's favorite Johnny Cochran cosplayer and future pretzel salesman, the great Phil Morris as Jackie Childs. Good Samaritan law. I never heard of it. You don't have to help anybody. That's what this country's all about. That's deplorable, unfathomable, improbable. Hold on. Susie, cancel my appointment with Dr. Bison and uh, pack a bag for me. I want to get to Latham, Massachusetts right away. So a big shot city lawyer comes to a small town to take on a law that few have ever heard of. What is a small town legal department to do? The whole country is going to be watching this. Now we got to do whatever it takes to win it, no matter what the cost. You know, now the big issue in this trial is going to be character. I want you to find out everything you can about these people, and I mean everything. 
So before we get to the latest trial of the century of the previous century, here now to sum things up for us is a veteran of our fiery wrath and survivor of the mystery of Al Capone's vaults. Take it away, Geraldo Rivera. Hi everybody, I'm Geraldo Rivera. Tonight we'll be talking about what most of you have probably been discussing in your homes and around the water coolers in your offices. I am speaking, of course, of the controversial Good Samaritan trial that gets underway Thursday in Latham, Massachusetts. Let's go to Latham Live, where Jane Wells is standing by. Jane. There also seems to be some friction between Mr. Seinfeld and Ms. Binnis. The rumor is that they once dated, and it's possible that ended badly. Well, ladies and gentlemen, who knows, maybe this trial will bring them closer together. Maybe they'll even end up getting married. That joke, by the way, was long rumored to be an actual episode plot point. But Hollywood being a town full of red herrings misdirected appropriately. So now it's time to assemble everyone who ever appeared on Seinfeld ever. <laughs> or at least everyone who appeared on the show who was available and or still alive. Because remember, the prosecution is sparing no expense to bring four random strangers to justice over a law that seldom sees enforcement in the real world. And also because this is the final episode of a highly popular TV show, with 76 million people tuning in, maybe some of those viewers were casting agents. You never know. So after a little trial prep, the trial starts with a hopefully good omen slash series callback. Forest District County Court, Latham, Massachusetts is now in session. The Honorable Judge Arthur Vandalay presiding. Vandalay? The judge's name is Vandalay? Vanda who? Jerry Janet? Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a good sign. <laughs> yeah, because that good sign worked so well before. Vandalay! Be my latex sale. Which brings us to our opening statements. Ladies and gentlemen, last year, our city council, by a vote of 12 to, to 2, passed a good Samaritan law. Now, essentially, we made it a crime to ignore a fellow human being in trouble. Now, this group from New York not only ignored, but as we will prove, they actually mocked the victim as he was being robbed at gunpoint. I can guarantee you one other thing. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not the first time they have behaved in this manner. On the contrary, they have quite a record of mocking and maligning. This is a history of selfishness, self-absorption, immaturity, and greed. Uh, you're jumping ahead of me, but please continue. And you will see how everyone who has come into contact with these four individuals has been abused, wronged, deceived, and betrayed. <laughs> this time, they have gone too far. This time, they are going to be held accountable. This time, they are the ones who will pay. And that, ladies and gentle demons, is pretty much the crux of Act 4 and also the rest of the episode. To parade out a collection of ghosts from episodes past to call back some of the show's greatest moments. Which I honestly wouldn't complain about, except for the fact that this series finale was preceded by... A 45-minute clip show! I mean... There have been people invested in this show since day one back in 1989, and by and large, it helped NBC pull in a boatload of revenue for themselves. But the least you can do is give those viewers who invested all that time into a nine-year run even the smallest iota of credit. Either that or Larry David really wanted to cash in a quick easy-in, easy-out paycheck because that's all this back half of the show is, an excuse to play a reel of greatest hits even though they were already treated to one an hour early but that's just the cynical take on things. If you were a diehard fan of the show, the callbacks at least were a treat, even though this unique moment in TV history is essentially being wasted on printing out residual checks. The prosecution has gone to great lengths and considerable cost to find these character witnesses. It is imperative that we establish this is not merely an isolated incident. It's part of a pattern of antisocial behavior that's been going on for years. Objection overruled. Thank you. 
I'll hear the witness. One positive thing I can say about this, however, at least it helps us speed things along because there are things in this that chances are the millions and millions of people that have seen this episode have already seen. We've seen Jerry steal a marble rye from an old lady. Stop it! seen the contest episode. I'm out. We've seen the bubble boy. Who invaded Spain in the 8th century? That's a joke. The Moors. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm so sorry. It's the Moops. The correct answer is the Moops. We've seen Kramer selling a disabled person a used wheelchair. <laughs> We've seen Jordan's fiance bite the big one from licking envelopes. Court. We've seen how real and spectacular Terry Hatcher's breasts are, or at least Elaine did. You know, I've seen you around the club. My name's Sidra. This is Marcy. Oh, hi. I'm Elaine. Hi. We've seen the library cop slash co-star of Vanna White's TV movie. What about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees? In the head. We've seen George leave a kid's birthday party to burn. Fire! We've seen Jerry get busted for taking a leak in a parking lot. Why would I do it unless I was in mortal danger? I know it's against the law. I don't know. Because I could get uromycetosis poisoning and die, that's why. Brought to you once again by the National Uromycetosis Foundation. For if you don't have an empty plastic bottle on hand, just try not to be seen when you do your business. The parade of memory lapses continues, such as the time Kramer dressed as a pimp. You just cost me some money. Cool it, lady. The time when Seinfeld was convinced to wear a puffy shirt. You're gonna be the first pirate. Well, I don't wanna be a pirate. And as long as Larry David is writing this episode, why not have him voice George Steinbrenner for old time's sake? And one little problem, though. What was that? He was a communist. Because they come like a big, juicy steak. And with time running short, let's do a rapid fire of more memories. Cockfighting? Cockfighting. Sponges. And I don't mean the kind you clean your tub with. They're for sex. She exposed her nipple. How did she try to kill you? She tried to smother me with a pillow. And of course, what would anything Seinfeld-related be without bringing up the soup Nazi? You want bread? Yes, please. Three dollars! <laughs> what? No soup for you! And finally, a guy who, through sheer happenstance, not necessarily the fault of Seinfeld and his friends, a guy that they somehow managed to get deported. I owned a restaurant. Seinfeld told me to change the menu to Pakistani, but nobody came. There were no people. Then he got me an apartment in his building, but they mixed up the mail, and I never got my immigration renewal papers. So they deported me. It's all his fault. Finally, I will have some justice. Send them away. Send them all away. Lock them up forever. They are not human. They are very bad. Very, very, very bad. And again, all of these remembrances are fine if this were any other episode of the series. Like maybe in season five or six or on the show's 100th episode or something. But for them to waste this last episode on what's essentially a clip show that once again was preceded by an actual clip show might be the biggest bone of contention among those who saw the show when it first aired. So now we must continue with due diligence at the start of Act 5. The jury is out. The guest stars enjoy one more piece of camera time. Jackie Childs is in bed with Terry Hatcher because who the here wouldn't want to get in bed with Terry Hatcher at any age? Never mind the fact that a defense attorney sleeping with a prosecution star witness is totally grounds for a mistrial. But again, I digress. Before we get to the grand reveal, wasn't there something Elaine wanted to tell Jerry when they thought their plane was going to crash? Hey, Elaine, what was it you were about to say to me on the plane when it was going down? 
I've always loved you, United Airlines. Well, that stands to reason. The future president, Selena Meyer, on Vive loves the Selena Meyer of air transportation. And now, the grand reveal. Will the defendants please rise? And how do you find with respect to the charge of criminal indifference? We find the defendants guilty. Okay. One other digression I need to make, and then I promise that's it for the year. When this first aired, many people were upset that the Seinfeld gang got punished for what they did, and that they wound up in jail for a one-year sentence because of it, even though there are enough legal loopholes to drive a cruise ship through. Frankly, I don't understand why there was such an outrage to that. Yes, good Samaritans slash duty to report laws are questionable to enforce, and once again, I invite you to look up Legal Eagle's video on YouTube for all the details on that, but it's not like these were all good people to begin with. Granted, their sociopathy was played up for laughs, but quite honestly, this episode showed only the tip of the iceberg when it came to just how sociopathic they could be at times, no matter how accidental or intentional. Look at any work of fiction, and you'll see that sociopathic behavior will mostly, if not always, lead to one's comeuppance in the end. Truthfully and honestly, the gang got what they deserved here. But because people are so accustomed to seeing so-called Hollywood endings all over the place, seeing a comedy end on a downer note and then becoming a perennial entry in worst TV finales of all time can certainly rub people the wrong way, especially those who invested that much time into watching it. I don't think this is a perfect ending by any means, but it's still a fair one in terms of storytelling. These characters spend nine years getting away with figurative murder, and now they have to pay for it, even though they likely got sprung on a technicality anyway. Again, please watch Legal Eagle's video on the Seinfeld finale. It'll make a lot of sense, I promise. So now, before we go, the gang is led to their holding cell to contemplate the future and also wrap up some of those Z-plots. If I call Jill from prison, you think that would make up for the other ones? Sure. Because you only get one call. The prison call is like the king of calls. I think that would be a very nice gesture. It's out! About that, huh? Oh boy, what a relief. See, now to me, that button is in the worst possible spot. Really? Oh, yeah. The second button is the key button. It literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it, it's too high. It's in no man's land. Haven't we had this conversation before? You think? I think we have. Yeah, maybe we have. Indeed they have. For that was the first conversation that Jerry and George had in the pilot episode then known as the Seinfeld Chronicles. See, now to me, that button's in the worst possible spot. The second button literally makes or breaks the shirt. Look at it. It's too high. You do, of course, try on when you buy. Yes, it was purple. I liked it. I don't actually recall considering the button. Oh, you don't recall. <clears throat> no, not at this time. And were this not a cold, cruel world where the afterlife can be hotter than hot, that scene right there would have been the perfect place to start rolling the credits. It leaves everybody's fate up in the air while still being decisive at the same time. What fate awaits them in their year behind bars? We don't know. And maybe we don't want to know. Or at least it would have been the perfect place to start rolling the credits were it not for one final sandbag hitting the audience's head. And I think this is where a large chunk of viewer complaints for this show may have originated from. So what is the deal with the yard? I mean, when I was a kid, my mother wanted me to play in the yard, but of course she didn't have to worry about my next door neighbor Tommy sticking a shiv in my thigh. <laughs> and what's with the lockdown? Why do we have to be locked in our cells? Are we that bad that we have to be sent to prison? In prison? You would think the weightlifting and the sodomy is enough. <laughs> So, uh, anyone from cell block D? I am. 
I'll talk slower. <laughs> I'm kidding. I love cell block D. My friend George is in cell block D. <laughs> what, what are you in for, sir? Murder one. Murder one. Ooh, watch out, everybody. Better be nice to you. I'm only kidding, sir. Lighten up. How about you? What are you in for? Grand Theft Auto. Grand Theft Auto. Don't steal any of my jokes. You suck. I'm going to cut you. Hey, I don't come down to where you work and knock the license plate out of your hand. All right, Seinfeld, that's it. Let's go. Come on. All right. Hey, you've been great. See you in the cafeteria. Now, there are reasons why this final tag took place. The biggest of which was because, after viewing the original cut of the episode, both Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld thought the closing shot of the foursome in their jail cell was too much of a downer. So, a few weeks after the show wrapped, they went ahead and filmed that scene in an effort to make a last-second mood lifter. And it was because of that mood lifter that an already questionable series finale not only became a punchline for years to come, but that this finale would cement itself among the ranks of the Bicentennial, the launch of New Coke, Hands Across America, the Virtual Boy, and as of 1998, the yet to happen Star Wars prequels, the Y2K panic, the 2012 panic, and the fucking Cats movie as one of the most overblown and overhyped and overrated events in American history. Leaving 76 million viewers wishing that they could throw their TVs out their windows SCTV style. Meanwhile, I can think of a better ledge, or nine of them, to throw this finale off of. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. For those expecting the show to end with a bang, critics thought it ended with more of a thud. Ken Tucker of Entertainment Weekly stated, quote, Returning co-creator David turned spiteful, unforgiving moralist, making Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer pay for all their years of, and I'm quoting the late James Rebhorn's lawyer character, selfishness, self-absorption, immaturity, and greed. No, 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 don't ring for that just yet. Let me finish. Tucker goes on to say, quote, David took the idea that these are essentially unlikable people and ran with it, mainly leaving out the jokes, but mostly retribution prevailed. It's as if David forgot that in nearly every episode invoked, the gang was made to suffer for whatever wrongdoing they committed. It's not as if Jerry got off scot-free for mugging that old woman for her marble rye, as if George didn't pay for going cheap on those wedding invitations. This crew led miserable lives and we relished their exceptional pettiness. That they should be punished for all the vicarious fun we had at their expense is David's way of saying that we should never have made these cruel losers must-see worthy. From the episode's start to an ending that felt more like a Samuel Beckett first draft, the show's swan song was off-key and bloated. The best Seinfelds over nine years were dark with the blackest of humor, but this episode's jokes were lame. Ultimately, Seinfeld and David's kiss-off was a hearty, so long, suckers, end quote. Tucker ultimately giving the show an episode rating of C-. As time marched on, the finale's place in TV history as a finale dud pretty much got cemented even further. The AV Club ranked it at number two among the list of the ten worst finales of all time. Time Magazine ranked it as number six on a list of anticipated finales, both good and not so good. And as time further marched on, even Seinfeld himself joined in on the sentiment. When he hosted SNL in 1999, he responded to the backlash by getting transferred to Oz Prison on HBO. Jerry Seinfeld, pleasure to meet you. You a Hebrew? Yeah, but people don't seem to have a problem with it on a national level. While Curb Your Enthusiasm would devote its seventh season to essentially making a Seinfeld reunion that would hopefully do damage control. Kramer and I were all set to do this fake mugging, and you had to put all these ideas in his head that he was doing something wrong. Even when David Letterman retired in 2015 and he brought both Seinfeld and Julia Louis-Dreyfus on for a special top ten list, Julia couldn't help it, albeit what she said was actually a line that was championed by Seinfeld himself. Thanks for letting me take part in another hugely disappointing series finale. 
And finally, in a 2021 interview with the Today Show, Seinfeld put the issue to rest, hopefully once and for all, by saying, quote, I sometimes think we really shouldn't have done it. There was a lot of pressure on us at that time to do one big last show. But big is always bad in comedy. Comedy should be small and cheap and quick. That's why TV is always funnier than the movies. Because you don't have that much time and that much money. End quote. This resulted in an overhyped event that, thanks to said hype inflating itself, resulted in a gluttonous 75-minute runtime including commercials. A story that had more legal loopholes to jump through than a lawsuit against Ringling Brothers. So the case would have been likely thrown out due to a serious case of both judicial and legal fraud. Not to mention Jackie Childs sleeping with a witness. Though not a flag raiser for lust, it would certainly and inadvertently cause judicial treachery in the real world. Plus, a resolution that left their characters in limbo, because I refuse to count the Curb Your Enthusiasm reunion episodes as canonical. Many of its viewers feeling wrathful that it didn't end in a better way. And all because NBC wanted to hype the shit out of it by milking things drier than the Dust Bowl while lighting their pockets with overinflated ad revenue in one last greedy attempt to exploit the success of their biggest show. Now you may ring it. But to be fair, the network was probably going to need that money for the following season because once they lost the number one show in television, the network certainly needed to adjust a little bit. Fortunately, they had a lot of other hit shows on the air in 1998, so they wouldn't face any immediate trauma. Give it six years time, however, and suddenly the story gets a little darker. Now, as I, uh, as I mentioned before, the Emmys are being telecast uh, on NBC this year. And as you may know, since I hosted four years ago, NBC's fortunes have changed. You see, back then we were number one, the number one network. Now we're in the top five. <laughs> I had to change that line. Anyway, uh... The series finale of Seinfeld earned six out of nine circles of telehell. But I wouldn't go feeling too bad for everybody involved. Like many cases of adversity, the cast and crew wound up dusting themselves off and forging ahead. Seinfeld doing more stand-up and a second-act career as a guy who likes to drive cars and drink coffee with his fellow comedians. Larry David continuing to curb his enthusiasm while cosplaying as Bernie Sanders. Julia Louis-Dreyfus racking up Emmy after Emmy for two of her three big comeback shows. Jason Alexander still remaining a long-time but critically underrated star of stage and screen, but mostly stage. And Michael Richards... If only there were a, a horrible name that I could call you that would make you as angry as I am! The jury is still out on him, but it's never too late to make a comeback. But then again, why would either of them want to? As flawed as the final Seinfeld was, the rest of the show still holds up phenomenally well and will remain the pinnacle of achievement for everybody involved. What started as a show that nobody understood would eventually evolve into one that everybody could relate to. Even if you didn't hail from New York, you could still come across people in all walks of life who would act upon the nuances and idiosyncrasies that make people unique in the first place, no matter how annoying people could be at times. The people on the show were not perfect. Nobody is. But it was because of these imperfections that people kept coming back week after week because of how relatable they were. Who among us is not a loser like George? Yeah, like I don't know that I'm pathetic. A wild card like Kramer. I'm out there, Jerry, and I'm loving every minute. A fuss budget like Elaine. You don't like the movie? I hate it! I'm gonna hell! Or a cynic like Jerry. Oh, I guess you don't want people calling you at home. No. Well, now you know how I feel. <laughs> they may seem like negative traits on the surface, but deep down, it's all those same traits that make us all human. And in the end, it made Seinfeld a show about something all along. Do you ever think about what your life would have been like if it had actually been dead? I guess it would have been okay. It wouldn't have been as good. Who knows? I might be in the same place. But, you know, it was great to be able to make that and contribute that 
My wife and I took the kids to do Meals on Wheels. You go around and you give food to yeah. people who only get that one meal a day. And every uh, room we went in, it was, you know, uh, an older person or a sick, a frail person. In every one of these rooms, the TV's on. Yeah. And I thought, oh, that's what you're doing for people. Mm. That TV, they're not, they're not coming to the Beacon. They can't see that, you know. But you can reach them through TV. And it made me realize, oh, that was really worth it to make that TV show because I never would have gotten in that room. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was really powerful. Still, though, there's one thing about the finale that kind of bugs me. This whole Good Samaritan thing. And one more time, I'll refer you to the Legal Eagle YouTube channel for the whole detail, but just trust me when I say he knows what he's talking about. But it's this whole notion of getting arrested, convicted, sent to trial, and ultimately sentenced for doing nothing. I mean, having all that happen just for doing nothing, that, that doesn't feel right. I mean, if I were to get arrested for doing nothing, where's the justice in that? The? Who could that be? Reach for the sky, pilgrim. Wangus Khan, what are you doing here? First of all, I prefer to be called Con Wayne. It just flows off the tongue a little easier. And second, bet you didn't know that I'm Hell's chief of police, and I'm here under orders from the boss man to haul you in. On what charge? I've been notified by the boss's secretary that you skipped a couple of your assignments this year and that you're all out of episodes for the season. Therefore, narrator of Telehell, you're under arrest on at least eight counts of job negligence and possibly some other stuff once we get you processed downstairs. But the boss knows that I spent most of this season doing theme months, right? I mean... They knew about the schedule. Be that as it may, Pilgrim, I still gotta do my job. Now put your hands behind your back and come with me. Hey, wait. And another thing, wouldn't having a jail and a police department here be a little redundant? I don't make the laws, I just enforce them. Now come on, don't make this a rough one. I'm just saying, I'm already being punished for all of eternity. Adding an extra punishment on top of that would be like adding poison. To cyanide. Will you stop talking and let me put you in the paddy wagon? And besides, the last time I checked, sloth is a deadly sin. That's that's something for the purgatory people, isn't it? Please don't make me tase you. Granted, they have lust, wrath, and greed up there too, but they're so casual about it. At least that's how they made it seem in the movie Seven. But it's been a while since I've seen that, and okay. probably the only good you performance. <laughs> Some people will say anything to get out of trouble. Come on, Pilgrim. You've got a long trip ahead of you. The part of Wingus Khan, or Khan Wayne, was played by Chad B. White. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. The show may be over, but you know where to find us. On social media, Twitter and Facebook at Telehell Podcast. Want to hear some premium content? Go to patreon.com slash telehellpodcast. And if you have any questions or comments about this show, feel free to contact us at our complaint line, telehellpodcast at gmail.com. But even more than that, please be sure to like, comment, rate, subscribe, lie to us all over the places where Telehell is streaming, including Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and many others, just by Googling Telehell. And now that special message that we promised you. 
Uh, before we go, we do have some housekeeping to take care of. And first and foremost, thanks to everybody who tuned into this season. We truly cannot do it without you. And that also goes double for our patrons at patreon.com slash podcast. You really do give us the extra pop that we need to sound good each and every time we do a show. So thank you very much to everybody, really. Now, as a reminder, we still have the matter of our fourth anniversary slash 50,000 downloads slash charity episode, and we want to let you know that it's going to be taking place on July 9th. Same bat time, same bat places to stream. But there has been a last-minute change in the lineup. I know that for a while we've been saying that this episode's going to be a look at the 1987 show, The New Monkeys, which, by the way, was going to tie into our charity of choice this year, the World Wildlife Fund, a.k.a. the official WWF, and no, they have nothing to do with wrestling. That's a long story. While we are still going to be raising money for this charity on July 9th, the plans for the episode kinda sorta fell through. We were supposed to get a few special guests for the show, but unfortunately the plans just simply could not come together in the way that I wanted them to, so with that, we're going to do two things here. First of all, we promise that we're going to cover the new monkeys next season. It's pretty much just going to be a regular episode. It's not going to be a big thing now, so please keep your expectations low for that one when it's eventually released, hopefully sometime next year. But now the good news. Hopefully all of you by now have heard the episode that we did a few weeks ago about the Principal and the Pauper episode of The Simpsons with our special guest, former Simpsons writer and executive producer Bill Oakley. As it turns out, there were many more questions that I asked him when recording the interview, and you're going to hear every single one of them in our new fourth anniversary 50,000 download charity episode, which we're calling Bill Oakley Uncut, Unsteamed, Unhammed. And the way it works, again, is simple. Once we drop the episode over a two-week period, this will be from July 9th through July 23rd, we will be donating $1 for every download the show gets during that period, and this year, because we're hitting so many milestones now, the maximum that we're going to be donating is $500. Again, $1 per download, July 9th through the 23rd. And we also have some eBay auctions coming up. Proceeds, once again, benefiting the World Wildlife Fund. After that show, I'm going to be taking a slightly longer summer break than usual. Sort of a long story, but there's been a lot of things happening outside the podcast that's kind of been beyond my control, and I have a feeling it's going to wind up sucking up a lot of time. So I'm just going to tell you right now that yes, there is going to be a season six. I just don't know when specifically at this point, but... We will keep you updated. We will let you know if anything changes, but we will have a season six. I promise you that. Of course, we're also still going to do uh, things throughout the summer. We're going to bring some of our premium shows out from behind the paywall. We're going to do our annual recap show and maybe even a fourth edition of Ask Telehell where you get to ask us questions and we'll try to answer them in some unique way. But other than that, I'm pretty much out of gas. So (laughs) I got to start some semblance of a vacation and it's starting right now so again thank you all for listening this season and we will meet again i promise until then if it's not in telehell it's not worth a damn now if you'll excuse me somebody's trying to wheel me out of here in a police car (laughs) 